Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Fireplace Series, interdisciplinary and impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. The fireplace conversation you are about to hear took place on the 11th of October, 2019, between two Queen's professors, Dr. Samantha King of the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies and the Department of Gender Studies, and Dr. Will Kimlicka from the Department of Philosophy. The topic of their talk together is animals, ethics, and everyday politics. My name is Allison Moorhead, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Art, History, and Art Conservation. The Fireplace series was inaugurated just over two years ago by Barbara Crow and Martha Whitehead, and it continues under the Dean's ongoing support and that of the new university librarian, Michael Vandenberg. The series is intended as a set of interdisciplinary conversations on topics of broad interest. We invite two scholars from different disciplinary backgrounds or fields to chat informally, seeking common and uncommon ground. If you have an idea for a future fireplace chat, please feel free to reach out to Laura and myself. We're especially keen to showcase visiting scholars and new faculty members at Queen's. Today's speakers have agreed on some topics they'd like to discuss, and I'll get them going with a question or two. After about 45 minutes, we will invite audience members to join in the conversation with your own questions. Today's conversation is entitled Animals, Ethics, and Everyday Politics, and takes place between two distinguished scholars who have approached the question of how animals and humans relate to each other every day from the different perspectives of health and food studies and political philosophy. They are, and I don't think this is hyperbole given the conversations I've had with students and colleagues, among Queen's most treasured scholars whose work, leadership, and mentorship are deeply appreciated here on campus and well beyond. Samantha King is professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies and head of the Department of Gender Studies. Her wide-ranging interdisciplinary research includes work on breast cancer fundraising, painkillers, sport and racialized sexuality, eating animals, and the cultures of protein. She is especially well-known for her 2006 book, Pink Ribbons, Inc., Breast Cancer and the Politics of Philanthropy, which reached an even wider audience when it was made into a documentary by the National Film Board. Sammy is most recently one of the editors of the volume Messy Eating, Conversations on Animals as Food, which will actually have an official book launch next week, if I'm not mistaken. This book invited scholars from a range of disciplines and theoretical perspectives to reflect on how their academic work might relate, messily, to their own approaches to eating animals. Will Kimlicka is Canada Research Chair in Political Philosophy, and I'm sure, as many of you know, this year's recipient of the Gold Medal from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, which is, and this is the award citation, given to an individual whose sustained leadership, dedication, and originality of thought have inspired students and colleagues alike. 
He is the author of numerous books and articles focused on models of citizenship and social justice within contemporary multicultural societies, and is perhaps most well-known for the 1995 book, Multicultural Citizenship, A Liberal Theory of Minority Rights, widely translated, and his best-selling critical introduction to contemporary political philosophy, also widely translated and with a second edition uh, published in 2002. With their 2011 book, Zoopolis, A Political Theory of Animal Rights, Will and his co-author and partner, Sue Donaldson, extend the membership model of citizenship to consider the different ways that animals relate to human societies as a means for putting forth new ways of thinking about animal rights theory. So as I mentioned, I will start off with a question or two to get our speakers warmed up. And because we're in the realm of the everyday, I thought I would ask what seems to be a very mundane question to start. How, and perhaps also why, did each of you start thinking about relationships between animals, and in particular, relationships between non-human and human animals? Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Alison. That was a really nice introduction. Thank you for all, all for being here. and. Uh, to the organizers who brought this wonderful event together. It's a real honor to share the stage uh, with my colleague, Will. Uh, so my answer to this uh, first question is a little longer maybe than some of my other answers because I uh, the, like the overall argument of the book, uh, my interest in uh, human and non-human animal relationships emerges not from a linear story, but uh, a messy conjuncture of forces. So a number of years ago, some of my graduate students began to start reading and writing about food and about animals. I think, you know, the animal turn has crossed many disciplines, uh, in, in including health studies. And one of them wrote a really interesting paper where she used Sarah Ahmed's notion of the feminist killjoy to think about the vegan killjoy. And I think about this a lot as Thanksgiving approaches. And um, so with her and another student who both ended up being editors on the book, we started reading informally outside the classroom uh, some of the animal literatures. And I had been a vegetarian for 30 years, but I hadn't really thought about why. <laughs> uh, I had just done it. And I wasn't thinking about the lines I was unconsciously drawing between not eating animals, but eating fish or dairy and, and so on and so forth. And uh, I read Jonathan Safran Foe's Eating Animals as part of that group. And in there, he says that, you know, we, we all know about factory farming. We all know about those horrors. Uh, but uh, there's a sort of willful forgetting uh, that goes on uh, about that and our implication in it, but also uh, a forgetting Part of that is the forgetting of our own animality. Uh, and around that time, I had also fallen in love with a dog <laughs> um, for the first time. And it was the first time that I had felt a real deep connection, like an emotional connection uh, with an animal. Though as a child, I would refuse to go into zoos when the rest of my family went in and that kind of thing. I, uh, I hadn't felt that, that kind of um, connection before to an individual animal person. And uh, I, I think what happened was that I, I just started 
thinking about my own non-uniqueness in relation to her name was Shayla, uh, and uh, what Matthew Kalako, who's one of the people uh, we interview in the book, calls indistinction, this, uh, so a non-anthropocentric way of thinking about um, the indistinction between human and non-human animals and our shared vulnerability and embodiment and that kind of thing. Uh, and as we read on, uh, we also began to notice that there was this um, interesting gap uh, whereby folks who were writing on food studies didn't really write about human-animal relations much, and people who were writing in multi-species studies who were really focused on human-animal relations often weren't thinking about animals as food, which is the primary way we relate to non-human human animals, right, is by by eating them. Uh, and so we thought that was interesting and saw uh, a way that it reproduced humanistic and dualistic divides between animals uh, as objects that humans eat versus animals as subjects with whom we relate. And we thought it would be uh, interesting to push uh, people to, to, to think about that question. And we had read an interview with Donna Haraway that was very provocative uh, when she was asked about uh, eating animals. And she said that she wanted to see a place for agricultural animals in the world, but had a hard time responding to the convictions of her vegan friends when confronted with their arguments. And so we decided that we were going to pose uh, some questions uh, to to scholars in, in the field of multi-species studies about how, as Alison said, they think about their theory in relation to their everyday practice, uh, practices of eating animals and their politics. Um, and as I'll talk about a bit later, we also wanted to do that in a way that challenged the fields on some of its exclusions, especially around race and colonialism, and, and tried to assemble a group of scholars who would help us think through uh, multi-species relationships um, in a complex and messy way that attended to um, hierarchies of, of race and colonialism especially, but lots of other things too, as it turns out. So. Great. Uh, yeah, well, thanks also, Alison, uh, for the introduction and the invitation. So I, I have... Um, so my partner, Sue, and I have been... Um, vegans um, for, for over 30 years now. And so we've had a commitment to the general uh, cause of, of uh, animal rights. Um, and every <clears throat> few years since we've been married, uh, in the late 1980s, Sue would ask whether there was something we could do um, professionally. So, so in our personal life, we had become vegans, but whether there was something we, some way we could use our our uh, academic skills to advance the the cause. And I sort of resisted, um, in part because I thought that the basic arguments in favor of um, the idea that animals matter were already well established. So from the 1970s at least, um, there were good arguments out there in the literature for why we should think of animals as having moral status, why their interests should matter, and therefore why we should not impose 
unnecessary suffering on them. And so I didn't, it wasn't clear to me what I as a philosopher could add um, other than just repeating arguments that had already been made. Um, and so for, for, I guess, the first 20 years of our, of our marriage, I'd, I'd just um, not seen what I could contribute as a philosopher. Uh, and then in the, in the late uh, 2000s, um, it just became clear to me, or to Sue and I, that there was a real gap in the philosophical literature. So we had these arguments for why animals matter morally, and there were arguments for why we shouldn't impose unnecessary suffering on animals. But they didn't actually explore the question about how we should relate to animals after we stop exploiting them. So there were good arguments for why we should stop exploiting and harming animals, but there weren't there wasn't. There was very little, surprisingly little discussion about how we would relate to animals the day after we stop eating them. So, how would we how would we relate to to pigs and cows and chickens? Uh, uh, what what kind of society would we have with with uh, animals when we stop viewing them as just commodities or as just food? And. Um, uh, so, so there was there was there was really surprisingly little written on that, and um, insofar as people had talked about it, there was um, a, an influential strand of thinking, uh, which is sometimes called the abolitionist approach, but um, which we think would be more accurately called the extinctionist approach, which is that. Um, after, that once we stop viewing uh, farmed animals or agricultural animals as food, they should just become extinct. So that the, the, the just future that we'd be aiming towards is a world in which there are no cows or pigs or chickens um, uh, because we would stop them reproducing and uh, they would just become extinct. And that the whole idea of that there was a historical wrong to have domesticated animals in the first place. We did that for instrumental reasons. We've, and that, that once we no longer are instrumentalizing animals, we should just, as it were, extinguish, extinguish domesticated animals. So that in this, in this future scenario that some people were imagining, there'd be humans living amongst humans, and there'd be wild animals living in the wilderness, but there would be essentially no relationship, no, at least no social relationships between humans and animals. Um, and that just didn't seem to me right uh, or desirable. Um, and so it would, seemed important to, to actually explore what would, ju- what would good relationships look like between humans and, and domesticated animals after we stop viewing them as, as commodities or as food. And um, that seemed to me a question that, that philosophers could contribute to, in part because political philosophy uh, has a rich tradition of thinking about different forms of membership in society. And this is actually what, what I had worked on earlier in my career, how in increasingly diverse societies, we, we need to recognize that there are diverse ways that different kinds of groups can be members of society. And so, for example, indigenous peoples are not going to be members of Canadian society in the same way. They're, they're going to have a different membership relationship uh, to Canada than, than settler Canadians or than Quebecois Canadians. So, um, so in, I had already tried in my work to open up the idea that there are plural forms of membership um, and I think that um, we can use some of those tools from political philosophy to think about what, 
about diverse forms of membership in a multi-species society. And so how we could think about uh, domesticated animals, both companion animals, but also formerly farmed animals as, as members of a shared society and what kinds of social relationships we could have, but also what kinds of political systems we could construct that would take the interests of animals seriously. So I, I think generally speaking, Sammy and I, you know, share um, a lot of, of the same views and uh, intuitions and motivations. But one, one, one thing that we may have different intuitions about is about the category of animal rights, the category of rights, um, and, 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 the way, and the role that that has played in the, in the, in the debate um, around animals. Um, and so there is a divide in uh, um, people who work on uh, human-animal relations between those who um, think we really do need a powerful concept of rights to set limits on how humans treat animals, and others who think that that at least the way in which the concept of rights has been applied is boxing us in, is setting too you know is, is narrowing our moral imagination, and that uh, and or is anthropocentric, um, and that um, so that we that in thinking about the future relations with animals, we don't need to and perhaps shouldn't get locked into a rights framework. I didn't know whether you, I, I think we may have slightly different intuitions on that mm-hmm. question. Yeah, I mean, certainly when we conceived of the book, we tried to seek out scholars who weren't working within a, a rights framework. It didn't entirely work out that way. I mean, Manisha Decker is one of the interviewees. She's a legal scholar at um, UVic who does intersectional uh, work on animals and I think is interested in... Um, in in different ways of legislating uh, rights, but I think the 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 issue that that comes up again and again in the book around the question of rights is how do you how do you not prioritize uh, one category of of subject? Right. I mean, this is a it's there's a much bigger critique of of rights um, as an approach to uh, justice. Uh, and um, I think particularly in this book, uh, scholars are trying to move outside of a, a what Carl Arco again calls an identity-based approach. So to what extent are humans the same as animals? To what extent should we extend rights to animals in similar ways to that, that humans, though not all humans, uh, have rights? And what should those rights be? Um, and uh, and so you know the, the 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 great apes are an example, a more recent example of how people have been trying to to think about the possibility of um, expanding rights to animals or rights to rivers, for instance. Um, uh, the so so or or other uh, non-human forms of life, uh, and, and yeah. So so I would say that that's. Um, that's a feeling that we, uh, a view that we shared um, in putting this book together, though I'm certainly not against rights. I think they're just limited tools <laughs> for, um, and I think we could have much, um, you know, stronger legislation and, and stronger action around animal rights in Canada and beyond, but I, but I, but I think that, that way of framing the problem uh, can be limited.
Yeah. So I, this is this is um, it's it's a it's a it's a big um, debate in the in the community, both the academic community and the activist community, about the role of rights talk and and the concept of rights as a principle and as a guide for um, how we think about our relations with animals. The way Sue and I were thinking about it and the way we continue to think about it, um, it is actually quite rights-based. So in, in the human case, one, one way to think about it is that um, in the human case, we typically recognize actually two sets of rights, broadly speaking, in terms of our, uh, what we owe to other human beings. So one, one level is what we owe to humans, other humans simply because they are human. Like, how do, we re- how do we acknowledge our common humanity? Uh, how do we respect human dignity? Uh, so th- there are certain things we owe to people simply because they're human. Uh, so we can think of those as universal, universal basic rights uh, or, or personhood rights, let's say. Rights we owe to people because of their, their human personhood. Um, there's another set of rights that we owe to people because we're members of a shared society. So these are often called citizenship rights. So this is some political philosophy terminology. So we distinguish kind of universal personhood rights from citizenship rights. So if someone flies into Pearson Airport, they're all human beings. They all have personhood rights. Uh, Some of them are Canadian citizens. Some of them aren't. And that matters. When they get to passport control, whether they're Canadian citizens matters for whether they have the right to enter the country, whether they have the right to work, whether they have the right to vote. These These are citizenship rights, not personhood rights. So... I actually think we need both, and I, and I think the concept of rights is actually useful at both levels. I think there are some things we just should not never do to other human beings because they're human beings, and there are some things we owe to each other because we're citizens of a shared society. One way to think about the, 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 at least the philosophy around animal rights is that up, up until very recently, all of the work has been focused on basically that first level of universal rights. What do we owe animals simply in virtue of their intrinsic moral status? Uh, and so many people think we, we should never, we shouldn't experiment on animals, we shouldn't confine them, we shouldn't kill them. These are, these are basic universal rights that we owe to animals as such, at least to sentient animals as such. Um, but, but what Sue and I were trying to do was, we were taking that argument actually as, as, as established there's a, there's a long, long tradition arguing for that. But we have no comparable story in the animal case about membership rights. Um, so there, there's, no, there's, there's been no thought, at least in the, the mainstream of animal rights thinking, about what we might owe to animals because they're members of a shared society with us. Um, so not just what we owe them in virtue of the fact that they can suffer or that they're sentient. What do we owe them because of the fact that we are, live together in a common society? Um, so we, we, there's this robust idea of membership rights in the human case, um, but we have no comparable account of what we owe each other, what kinds of membership rights animals might have as being members of a shared society. And so the story we're trying to tell in Zoopolis is that in the case of domesticated animals, we brought them into our society. That's what domestication means, bringing them into the domus, into the domestic, into, to live and work alongside us. And that having brought them into our society, we, we need to recognize that they are now members of a shared society. And that as members of, of a shared society, they have membership rights. Um, and, that, and so that these include things, for example, just to give you a, a sense of what we are pushing for in Zoopolis, that we think in the case of domesticated animals, there should be a public health uh, 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 scheme for domesticated animals. 
That's a membership. In, in, in Canada, that's a membership right, and I think it should be a membership right that's extended to domesticated animals. Um, and uh, which is not, but th that is not necessarily a universal right, so I don't think we have an obligation to provide health care to uh, wild animals. In fact, I think it would actually be counterproductive to try to be intervening in the lives of wild animals to provide them health care. Uh, but I think we do have an obligation to provide health care to domesticated animals whom we have brought into our society and whom we should recognize as members of a shared society. So I, I agree completely. The rights are limited. They're, they're a limited tool in the toolbox. But I actually, I, I, I think that at least, I mean, the, they've played the idea of both universal human rights and citizenship rights have been central to social justice struggles. I, I think if we think of insofar as we've made moral progress as a, as a human species over the 20th century, it's because we have actually really institutionalized some fundamental principles of both person, universal personhood rights and citizenship rights. And um, I, I, I'm skeptical about the idea that we can achieve justice for animals if we don't think in a similar way about the idea of both certain universal rights that we owe to sentient animals and membership rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that that brings up is the one's position on the state and its role right. in right. Um, regulating citizenship and, and the borders that that might imply um, and, um, and membership and who belongs and who doesn't. And I think that's a, another of the themes that comes up uh, in the book. And Billy Ray Belcourt's particularly um, strong on this point is, um, you know, he makes the claim that animal studies hasn't really take accounted for the settler colonial state. Um, I, I think that's, you know, increasingly people are, are taking that on both within and out, outside of um, the field. Uh, but the, you may have heard of the concept of cattle colonialism, right? But the, the very idea that the settler state is, is, is founded on the exploitation of animals, but also that it has the sovereignty to determine who and who, who is not a member um, of that state. And, and of course, the ways that that, that shapes, shapes human and animal inclusion. So I think I would probably be a little less optimistic about citizenship as a model um, because of those... Uh, kinds of critiques, though I think it's really useful to think with. Yeah. So uh, on, the, on, the, um, on the, 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 the issue about um, animal, how an, animal studies has, has or has not considered the issue of, of uh, colonialism and indigenous peoples, um, so this is, this is a real, this is definitely one of the hot topics in the field, and, and rightly so. Um, and it's, it's um, this is in a way a kind of a parenthetical comment, but um, this, this is a, uh, it's, it's one of the really difficult and challenging issues for those of us who um, identify with the uh, animal rights movement. So we had the... It, it's, it's widely believed that there is a kind of fundamental uh, conflict between a commitment to animal rights and a commitment to indigenous rights. There, this, is, this is a wide, widely seen perception. Um, uh, and it, it's arisen because of a number of quite specific um, uh, events 
Um, so the, for a variety of, of, in my view, somewhat contingent and regrettable reasons, the issue of, of hunting uh, and, and, and harvesting, uh, so for example, the seal hunt, uh, have played an outsized role in the history of animal activism in Canada. So the first big animal rights cause in Canada was the seal hunt in the 1970s. And amongst the seal hunt, they're, they're both, as it were, settler Canadians who engaged in the seal hunt, but also indigenous communities who engaged in the seal hunt. And so from the beginning, it was seen that the animal rights people were trying to suppress or prohibit an indigenous practice of, of uh, the seal hunt. And, and so from the 1970s, it has created this perception that these are two warring camps. Um, and, and that perception has been, is periodically reinforced. But for example, uh, there have been debates lately about uh, hunting in the Short Hills Provincial Park in southwestern Ontario, where the Mohawks have been reasserting a right under treaties to, to shoot, to, to, to hunt deer in the provincial park. Um, so, and, and certain animal rights people have been contesting that idea that there's an indigenous right to hunt the deer in the provincial park. So, so anyway, so we've got, we, we've, we've inherited this idea that there's a kind of deep uh, conflict between a commitment to animal rights and a commitment to indigenous rights. Uh, I mean, in retrospect, it seems to me really uh, kind of unfortunate and uh, that, it, that that's the way this issue evolved in Canada. I think today, the vast majority of people who are involved in animal rights activism would say that the fundamental issue is factory farming. It's not, it's not the seal hunt. Um, it's not fur. It's, it's factory farming. Um, and, and secondarily, it's it, uh, things like animal experimentation, um, all of which are, are run by settler Canadians, not indigenous Canadians. So it would have been very easy to have a long list of animal rights causes that did not uh, uh, involve conflict with indigenous peoples or indigenous rights claims or treaty rights or um, uh, it's actually it's actually interesting to think about why was why was the issue of fur picked as the the the, the big issue in the 1970s and it's that's actually a complicated and uh, question but so um, so I, I, I my own view is that we've inherited this history which has created the, this perception of a of a deep conflict between animal rights and indigenous rights but that um, if we actually step back and think about what's the vision of human-animal relations that underpins animal rights, uh, indigenous cultures, um, and the status quo law. So this, the status quo is that animals are seen as property. That's, that's the law that currently governs Canada. That is rejected by animal rights people, but it's also rejected by indigenous peoples. Uh, this is, this, every indigenous scholar who's written on this issue will say, that's the first thing they say, the idea of animals as property makes no sense on an indigenous worldview. Um, on the contrary, animals are seen as agents, as subjects, uh, who have what, what are understood to be an, a consensual relation, negotiated relations. They are agents who enter into negotiated relations with humans um, and indeed, the, on, on at least many of the indigenous uh, accounts, these should be seen as kind of treaty relations, um, that, that humans have treaty relations with, with animals that are periodically renegotiated and that, that we should think about animals 
behavior as, as, as and in part, we should be responsive to their behavior to understand that as a way of their renegotiating our relationship with us. So that idea that, that we should think of animals as agents and as subjects who have a say in how, they, in how our relations develop is exactly the, the model that Sue and I are trying to develop in, in Zoopolis. Um, and, and it's in part informed by, by some of the ideas of indigenous uh, philosophy. So, um, so at, at this kind of deep level about like who animals are, they're subjects, they're agents, and the, um, the, the, they're, they're, not com- they're not property, they're not commodities. I, I think that animal rights in indigenous uh, societies are actually in many, are much closer to each other than uh, they are to the settler state's idea of animals as property. Like that, that, that idea of animals as property is, is as I say, a totally um, at odds with indigenous philosophies as well as with animal rights. So I, I actually see that there's this quite a, quite, quite a large area of potential overlap and mutual learning between indigenous worldviews and, and animal rights um, and, the, and that, we, we, that, that I could have imagined an alternative history in which these were clearly allies in a fight against the settler state conception of animals as property. So, so we could have been allies. And I, and I actually think that there, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be hard to get out of this. We, we kind of dug ourselves into this hole of this perception of a kind of zero-sum relationship between animal rights and indigenous rights. But, uh, but I, I, I'd like to think that there's a way out of that and a way towards a greater mutual support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree that, that, that that's a point of convergence, for sure, and, and thinking, you know, we talked about this the other day, had, had the, the issue of animal rights emerged through, for instance, the dairy industry in Canada, what might that have looked like in terms of uh, those allegiances? But I think it's also not surprising that this issue emerged through the seal hunt because I think it speaks to indigenous erasure. And, and I, I taught this deep and ongoing and longstanding erasure. And uh, I taught Angry Inuk, the uh, documentary uh, film about uh, the seal hunt ban uh, made by an Inuit filmmaker in my class this week. And it's really striking how the European Union is... Their seal ban that is is uh, devastating uh, in, in not just Inuit people's livelihoods, but you know c- cultures' ability to feed themselves and so on. Um, in way, and it, what was really clear in that film is not just in the 1970s, but r- right now, just uh, a complete ignorance of the consequences of their actions and of of that uh, legislation, ongoing bans on. Uh, seal hunting uh, and uh, I th- think that uh, what the what the, the scholars in in our book are trying to do uh, is uh, is definitely think across those those divides but in doing so to refuse to privilege the human or the animal as the primary subject or category of analysis. Uh, and, and, and I mean, I think that that, uh, is, that idea is partly founded on indigenous philosophies of 
relational personhood that, that you spoke to. So uh, animals of people, trees of people, mountains, rivers, rocks, um, things, whether they're animate or inanimate. Uh, and that, uh, and, and, and also I, I guess the other point of erasure is not, is not just in that, in, in, in the, the erasure of indigenous perspectives and histories and traditions in terms of how we approach questions of hunting and other matters, but also of indigenous philosophies. And that's been, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I shouldn't even be speaking about this at some level. It's, uh, it's a, a project of ongoing learning uh, and uh, and also not just collapsing indigenous philosophies into this big, <laughs> you know, massive ideas, right? I mean, there are very different perspectives on 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 all of these questions um, among um, indigenous groups, but I, but I think that um, that the very chat like the the very ignorance um and the, the recognition of that and the challenge that presents um you know is is fundamental to the to the work that we're trying to do uh in this book and whether or not it succeeds uh succeeds i i don't know i mean i think it's it's really an ongoing challenge so, yeah sure Mm-hmm. So, one of the sites of negotiation of relations is, of course, the dinner table or the family home. So, I thought I would invite you to speak also about a little bit more about relationality in the context of the domestic space and in the context of the family. And I was going to point out that the covers of both of your books, you know, invite us to have that conversation. The cover of Will and Sue's book, um, if you haven't seen it, it's a, a an illustration of a woman peering into an old-fashioned, well, old-fashioned but also kind of trendy um, aga cast iron stove with a dog also peering into that stove you know, is dinner ready, right? Um, And the cover of Sammy's book is um, a very pristine white tablecloth with dinner plates, but with food scraps left on. And you're sort of, as the viewer, hovering over that. So I thought I would invite you to think more about the family, um, about parenting, about children and animals. um, And just if you can riff on that site of negotiation of relations um, in the home. Sure. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting because uh, that we have a lot of discussion about the book cover, and there are five editors on this book, so a lot of consultation. All, um, and uh, we decided pretty early on we didn't want to have bodies of any kind, human, animal, hybrid on the cover, because as soon as you you have a body, it's a particular body, right? So there's always going to be exclusions and normativities at work and so on. So, okay, no bodies. Uh, So we quickly came to the idea of the dinner table. uh, But we, the images of messy tables we kept coming up with, uh, we felt often had class and colonial orient. uh, intimations uh, and were, you know, how would people read that? I remember we had one image that looks like the 
Ken Monkman installation that had been here earlier that year. And uh, so anyway, eventually we settled on this picture and I, I was uh, going back throughout emails about the uh, how we came to that image this morning and Elaine Power, who's one of the co-editors of the book, uh, wrote something that I thought I would share with you. Uh, and uh, she said she found the image haunting and that the bone sitting on the plate on the right in the foreground uh, uh, is especially haunting. And she said there's something about all the plates pushed together that is reminiscent of factory farming, of overcrowding, and the different shapes of plates that suggest non-uniformity and uh, the abundance in the scraps of food, but also something sinister, uh, the leftover mess of a feast that someone has to clean up. Um, and I love Elaine because she always brings things back to domestic labor. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and these were, uh, uh, I mean, I think one, one of the things that uh, comes up in, uh, in the book because we ask people to talk about their food preparation uh, practices uh, as well as their consumption choices and and the question of of their own labor and divisions of household labor uh, but also uh, the the labor of the human and non-human animal workers that goes into the uh, the production of food um, how to think about uh, the you know most of the the labor on in, in the U.S. and increasingly so in Canada, uh, people who work with with cows, but also you know people who pick crops and so on, racialized migrant, very precarious labor. So uh, always trying to keep those uh, those things in in relation. Um, there were also lots of interesting stories about relationships, both familial and uh, erotic, uh, that. Uh, people shared with us. And um, I thought I would just share a couple uh, that really stuck with me. Uh, and one of them um, came out of an interview with uh, Nesagi Dave, who's actually going to be here next week for the book launch. She's an anthropologist at U of T. And uh, she talks about how she became a vegan because one day she looked out of her window and she saw this hot woman mowing her lawn and she asked her landlord, who is that? And he's like, I don't know, but she's a vegan. And <laughs> this was in um, Athens, Georgia. She was at the University of Georgia as an undergrad. And she decided that day to become a vegan. Uh, she never met the woman. She never spoke to her. They never went on a date. Uh, and she says that she thinks it's a useful story. I'm, I'm quoting her here because it demonstrates that the practice can, perhaps even ought to, precede the ideology. So as long as we're practicing something, it's very difficult to see outside of that thing because we're so invested in that practice, um, in maintaining ourselves and our lives as they are. It was only when I was no longer eating meat that I was free to think about what meat was. Um, and the other story I'm going to share is a place where we got pulled up short, I think, in a really interesting way. So we were interviewing Sonora Taylor, who is a disability and animal scholar, activist, and artist. Uh, and uh, we asked her about uh, parenting as a vegan. And she said uh, that uh, it was 
the uh, medical establishment was so much more freaked out about a woman with a disability having a baby than they were about her being vegan. Because vegan parents, women, mothers, pregnant women, get policed. Uh, it's a frequent story. They, they will tell about their policing by the medical establishment and others in more, in more informal settings. Um, and she says, uh, on one level, all, the, all of the medicalization that happened around being a very bi- visibly disabled woman who was pregnant totally took away from any concern people had about my being vegan. It was like my veganism was so low down on the list of what people were freaked out about that it really did not come up. And um, this, uh, you know, we asked her about mothering and food without thinking as well about disability. I think that was why it was a learning moment for us. It was like, okay. But there, there, our intersectional thinking went out the window, and um, she, I think, in that really provocative answer, made clear why it's always important to try and hold on to all of those things at once. Yeah, so, so the, the, the painting on our cover, it's a Colville painting. Some of you would probably recognize it if you saw it. Uh, 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 and it's one of several. We, we'd actually um, picked originally a different Colville painting uh, of a dog in the back seat of a car, a woman driving and the dog in the back seat, both looking. Um, but they're both images of... Um, and, and I should say that the, the Colville um, uh, people... So apparently, he, 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 this was before he died, he, he gave permission... Um, on the condition that the image not be used for something that would promote harming animals, um, so we were we were pleased that uh, that he he had that as a condition for the use of his images, and and that we were able to assure him. Um, so, uh, but what the the motivation was, um, and it goes back to our dissatisfaction with the older generation of animal rights philosophy. That if you go back to Peter Singer and Tom Regan uh, in the 1970s, they both work with this image of what, what's called the expanding circles model of morality. So the idea is that we initially cared about those who were closest to us, uh, our, our family, our kin, our, our tribe, but we have gradually extended the circles of moral consideration from ourselves, our immediate family, our, our kin, our tribe, to the nation to the world, understood in terms of the global humanity, and now, finally, to the very outer circle, which are non-human animals. So on Singer and Regan's view, animals are at the outer circle, farthest away from us, right? So on Singer and Regan's view, humans halfway around the world are closer to me than animals. Animals, so on that, on that way of thinking about it, animals are like you know, aliens from, from outer space. They're, they're the ultimately distant from um, the, 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 the outer circle of moral consideration. Whereas what we wanted to hi- remind people is that animals are absolutely here with us in our everyday lives, in our cars, in our kitchens, uh, in our bedrooms, oh, like our dog sleeps with us in the bed. So, so, it's, so if you start with, like, with the family... The fact is, animals are members of our family. They're not at the outer circle. They are in, they're in the innermost circle, right? So um, the, all the uh, p- polls show that like over 90% of people who have dogs or cats consider them members of the family. 
Um, and some of that's just a rhetorical trope, but some of that's, that means something, that, they, that they, they genuinely take the interests of their companions and, into account in making decisions about where to live, about what kinds of holidays to take. They, um, so Sammy was saying, and we're going through this at the moment, what, what, kind, of, what kind of home is most appropriate? If we've got a dog, what, what, what do we need to move to, to have a place that's better suited for a dog? Because she's a member of the family now. Um, and so, but they're, they're members of the neighborhood. Uh, they're members of our workplaces. So we wanted an image of, for the cover, which, which starts with idea, this idea that, that animals can be intimate um, intimate members of our of our closest uh, um, relationships, um, and that and that you know, and then as a political philosopher, I then think of that in terms of ideas of, of membership and membership rights and so on. But I, um, we wanted to, to to highlight to get something that was the opposite of this image of animals being on this very outer outer circle. Thank you so much for your presentations. Really interesting, and I, um, uh, for the for forty years of my marriage, we had an organic, big organic vegetable garden and raised chickens and pigs. Um, and honestly, um, what I'm finding missing from the discussion is the rights of plants. Like we, um, my husband couldn't bring himself to pick a cauliflower because that would actually kill it, um, and. So I think in the indigenous world, there are negotiated treaties with animals. There are also negotiated treaties with plants. And I went out a couple of weeks ago with an indigenous person to collect spruce root for a canoe build. And it's a matter of uh, um, giving tobacco and um, giving thanks to the spruce trees for releasing their roots to us. And these are negotiated things. And when we look at the globe and we think that 50% of the forest is gone, and we look at how we deal with plants, which is, you know, colonization of, of plants in our gardens and in our farms and covering the whole earth with our colonized plants. And um, plants have rights. They have families. They communicate with one another. And I think, I just wish honestly, that there was as much concern about uh, the rights of plants as there is with the rights of animals. And so I'm wondering what you might think about that. I could have a go. <laughs> I think a lot about this. Um, I, well, I think, uh, I think there are a lot of people who are concerned about the rights of plants. They may not put it in that language, but um, you know, I think that that's been clear even just over the last few weeks with the burning of the Amazon and so on. Um, but I think the problem, I, I, I want to think about those things together, not plants and animals separately. I want to think about them in relation. And I think your question speaks to the problem with using sentience as the measure of whether or not someone's deserving or a person is deserving of moral standing. Uh, and of course, you know, there's more and more evidence that plants, in fact, are sentient certain plants. So, you know, how do you um, how do you square all of that? So that's why I want to move the conversation in a different direction. Uh, and most of the folks I would say that we interviewed uh, for the book, uh, we have to eat. They agree with that. We have to eat. Uh, uh, we're never going to be able to find a pure space from which to 
organize our society or make choices around food. We can only, you know, do the most we can without causing harm and to, to, you know, to think about that um, uh, consistently. One of the things I am thinking about in my own work right now, uh, which, as Alison said, is moving towards thinking about protein and uh, our cultural preoccupation with protein and how it emerged as this uber-nutrient of our time and... You know, what's really interesting about that is that there's all this obsession with protein, and it's not just among carnivores. You know, if you look at the giant lettering on the Beyond Meat Burger, every piece of branding for the Beyond Meat Burger, it says in giant capital letters, 20 grams of protein in every serving, as if we're all wandering around lacking in uh, protein. Most of us are not. Um, And so I'm interested in that preoccupation set against escalating concern about climate change, right? I mean, those seem like paradoxes because we know that that, the animal, industrial animal agriculture, especially, and nitrogen pollution, uh, which come is derived largely from not just animal agriculture, but especially agriculture, uh, are you know, primary forces in, in the driving climate change. And so at the same time, that's going on. We're also um, globally, our cheese and meat intake is growing. And so how, what, to, what to make of that, that paradox and how can we not resolve it? Because I don't think that's actually possible. But what can we learn from it and what kind of path can we, uh, we draw through it? And I think not thinking in a binary fashion about plants and animals is, uh, is really crucial to that. So I, I, um, I mean, so there, there are lots of, um, uh, connections between the fate of the environment and the fate of animals. Um, and uh, there's, there is no there is no future f- for animals if uh, or for humans for human animals or non-human animals if um, if uh, we degrade the the environment and cl- climate change and so on um, and so uh, any anyone who cares about either human animals or non-human animals uh, must be deeply concerned about about uh, the environment and and uh, Ecology and 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 think about our responsibilities towards the um, the environment, and I'm I am um, would be would be very happy to um, if we had much a much more robust um, legal framework that involved uh, protection of the environment. But I do think that there is um, there's a there is a a distinctive question that arises when we're dealing with some entity that has the capacity for subjectively experiencing their lives, that they experience their lives going better or worse. We can say about many different um, objects in the world that, you know, I mean, so a a, a mountain may be eroding, a river may be, um, uh, you know, uh, diverted in, 
in, in ways, so there's lots of ways in which the natural functioning of objects can be enhanced or degraded, um, and, and we, we can think about how to make sure that, 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 that um, these ecosystems work uh, in, in, in ways that promote. But, 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 there, but in the universe, there, there are uh, beings who experience their lives going better or worse. Um, and that's a very specific uh, condition. Um, and it creates very specific kinds of vulnerabilities. Those people who experience their lives as going better or worse are subject to certain kinds of suffering or flourishing that just are not meaningfully ascribed to, to rocks or to car tires or, or to cauliflower. So, um, I, I, and I think that the category of rights is actually most useful as a tool for protecting the very specific kind of vulnerability that, is, um, th- that confronts those beings who have this capacity to subjectively experience their lives going better or worse. Um, where exactly? So, so I think sentience actually does matter because sentient beings are subject to a kind of vulnerability that other, other uh, entities on the planet are not subject to. Um, we don't need, this is not to say about hierarchies. It's not, um, and, and again, I'm not, it's, I don't think that, that this is usually thought of in terms of expanding moral circles. All of these metaphors don't seem to be helpful. I just, I just think sentient beings are subject to a kind of vulnerability that non-sentient beings are not. Um, and that we need to think about how do we protect sentient beings from this, this unique kind of vulnerability that arises from the fact that they experience their lives going better or worse. And I, I, so I, I, so that's not an argument for um, divorcing questions of animals from the environment, as if we could we could solve the animal question while the, the environment burns or something. Um, we need to think about them together. But I don't, I don't think we can do away with the question. I don't think we can ignore the question of whether we're, we're interacting with someone with a being that's sentient. I do, yeah. Um, hi. Yeah, my name is Oliver. Um, I wanted to ask, which leads into what, what you were just saying, Will, based on, I think, sort of mounting evidence that we don't need animal products to be healthy nowadays um, in sort of a, a modern Western context, um, and also sort of mounting evidence of, of the, the sentience and the, the suffering of animals, do you see veganism to people who can do it, i.e., again, sort of the modern West, I'm not talking rural farmers in China or something like that, someone who has to eat chickens to survive, but someone who doesn't have to. Do you see veganism as being a a moral imperative, something that, that if you can, should be practiced? I'm not big into moral imperatives. (laughs) So uh, I I, uh, I guess I would say no to that. Uh, I... I think that veganism is a really limited tactic. It's a, it's a, it can be an important one. It's a limited tactic in in contexts uh, where you the you know in in particular contexts uh, where where that's possible uh, and desirable. Yeah. So I, I'm so I'm a political philosopher, 
And so, um, I, I, and that's, that's partly by training, but also partly by inclination. I, I'm, I'm not myself... Um, the, the question of what we as individuals uh, choose to do, I think... Um, it's not. It's not basically. Basically, it's not what I work on. Um, I work on the question of what what we collectively should do, and in particular, what we should do through the state. This is what political philosophy is about. Um, what we should do through the law. Um, one reason why I'm not. Um, I, I actually think as as moral agents, individuals are. We're not built, let's say, for moral heroism. Uh, we're not able to, uh, most people, most of the time, are not able to deviate dramatically from the social norms of their society. We, we are social animals who, um, who are inevitably responsive to expectations of our peers. And, I mean, this is slowly changing, but, but being, I mean, since we became vegans 30 years ago, I can tell you 30 years ago, that, that was a quite unusual choice. And um, to, to put the burden on an individual to, to, to um, deviate so far from what's the social norm, it's, it's quite, it, uh, uh, even if it's true that it's, that it's nutritionally accessible to be a, a, a vegan, um, it's so, it, it, for many people, in many contexts, it's socially uh, um, difficult. And, and we know, so the evidence shows that four out of five people who convert to, to vegetarianism in North America relapse. Uh, and it's not because they, they no longer believe in the, the moral issues. They no longer believe that animals matter. They relapse because it's socially, it's just too socially difficult to maintain a vegan diet in a world which, is, which normalizes uh, eating meat and dairy. So I, I, I'm, I'm less... I, I, I think we can't solve this one by one, individual individual. Be, be, um, uh, I, I'm more interested in the question of what we should do as a society. And for me, this is first and foremost a question of legal status. Animals are property. The, the meat industry, the dairy industry, is built on the fact that animals are property. Um, and I, I think we need to get animals out of the property box. And I think that is a decision that we need collectively to make about uh, how, we, how we recognize the subjectivity of animals in the law. Um, and um, I, so, I, yeah, and, and um, I, I do think both for moral reasons and for environmental reasons, we need to transition from, from an from a, a animal-based diet to a plant-based diet. I, and, but I, I think we need to think of this um, at a more co- collective level. What, what are the, the legal and the institutional um, decisions we need collectively to make to, to create that future? I agree with that. <laughs> well, I think my question... Oh, sorry. Jennifer Hosek and one of my departments is Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. And I, I think I'm asking for talking points because I don't necessarily follow these debates as closely as you obviously do. And thank you for your work. Um, and I think that the story has traditionally been that thinking about animals in the ways that you're talking about today is fine for the privileged, and that was a bit what one of the colleagues, um, the person who just spoke, said. 
but doesn't work very well um, in the world of less privilege. And maybe that's completely wrong-headed, and so I'd like to give, hear the talking points on that, especially in today's situation where um, climate catastrophe is real, and I think the bunkering is going to be what's happening and um, exactly deciding, you know, who gets to eat. And it's not going to be the chicken if your child doesn't have food, to just kind of make it a little polemical. But because I really would like the like the concrete arguments that maybe I'm seeing it wrong and maybe it's not a dichotomy, which would I be don't, wonderful. Yeah, I guess that's what, I mean, I think that if you look around the world at who eats a vegan diet, right? I mean, the, you know, broad swathes of the world eat, eat, eat vegan diet from necessity, from cultural religious tradition, uh, Generally, poor people eat way less um, animal protein or or foods that are are high in uh, in terms of their environmental burden and all kinds of other aspects of their lives too. Um, I also just think it's really problematic to um, uh, make uh, assumptions. Uh, and I'm not saying you are making this assumption, but I'm, I'm saying it, this emerges in the discourse that somehow, for instance, you know, working class people aren't interested in animal rights or, you know, that, 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 those, that those dichotomies exist. So I think it's so contextual. All, all of this is highly contextual. And it's even saying these things like broad swathes of the world eat a vegan diet, just even though they wouldn't call it that, um, probably, you know, it's, is, is difficult. I mean, it worries me, um, because, because all of, all of these things are contextual, but I would just go back to uh, Will's point about our tendency just to drive this down to the level of the individual. And I think it's great for us all to do what we can in our own ways. We were talking about this the other day, not flying, eating less, animal protein, whatever, whatever that might be. But until we have... Uh, and this is ongoing. It's not like we have no systemic change and it's out there. But um, but that's the way that things are that that things are going to fundamentally change, right? And and so um, and and I'm seeing I'm teaching a class on called ecological embodiment with fourth year undergrads this semester, and we're constantly trying to pull ourselves out from the. Should I eat avocados, the monocrops, the water, the carbon footprint? Right, and it's, but it's that that we should actually, the monocrops are what we should be thinking about, right, as opposed to, and what drives that and how, you know, capitalism, colonialism, those kinds of structures, uh, uh, rather than, uh, and, I, and it's hard to avoid um, obsessing about our, our choices. And that's one of the things I'm trying to think about in this protein project. Critical nutrition uh, scholars talk about uh, nutricentric subjects, how uh, we've, we've been produced as people who think about food in terms of nutrition and our subjectivity in terms of nutrition, how damaging that is um, in all kinds of ways. And... Um, I'm trying to think about what happens when we start to think about ourselves in terms of as ecological subjects, uh, and and of course when I of course that's 
again, that's not a new thing for everyone, but there are, there are discourses that are encouraging us to think about that. And is there any opening there for, like, do, does thinking ecologically, because that's inherently relational, does it help us move out of uh, this super individualistic mode of approaching questions of food or eating? Uh, yeah, so I, I would just um, say that, that um, I mean, yeah, people's access to affordable and accessible plant-based you know, diets is, varies. And so, um, uh, and, and it is, you know, so the, 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 the burden or the effort of making that transition varies enormously f- um, uh, within society and across societies. And so we should, we should be attentive to the way in which um, those burdens can be, can be quite high for some, uh, for some people in some social circumstances. But I would, I would flip it around and instead focus on who is suffering from the fact that we've built a society and economy on the exploitation of animals. And um, I don't, you know, the, 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 who's going to be paying the price uh, into the future uh, f- f- um, from uh, our, our current form of animal agriculture? And I think it's overwhelmingly um, the global poor who are most vulnerable to the ongoing effects, whether it's uh, water pollution from, from factory farming or whether it's climate change um, or whether it's uh, the, the, the land displacement. So if you think about what's happening in a, a place like Brazil to, to, to create more cropland to feed the animals, to feed the global demand for meat, I mean, this, the, 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 the people who are most at risk uh, around the world from, um, from the consequences of, of industrialized animal agriculture are, are predominantly, it's not, it's not the privileged who are going to suffer from this, it's the, it's the, the global poor. So I, I think over the, the long term, there, there is no way to, to create a world that, that, will, that will provide a, a decent home for, for all of its uh, human residents, and, and in particular for the for the global poor, except by transitioning uh, uh, the way we the way we feed ourselves, and so it doesn't make any sense to my mind to say that because we're concerned about the global poor, therefore we shouldn't we shouldn't be supporting plant based uh, diets over animals. I mean, or that we should we sh- that we should be investing more in animal agriculture in order to help the global poor. Um, that that just seems to me totally uh, backwards, um, and and the the I mean and that 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 the way in which animal agriculture operates to impose costs on m- marginal and vulnerable populations it replicates itself at many different levels. I mean, so the, we know that the the that the the neighborhoods and and uh, counties where slaughterhouses are located. Tend to have higher rates of crime, and uh, the, the, so um, the, there. There are multiple ways in which this system of animal agriculture that we've built um, tends tends to impose costs on the, on the vulnerable and, and marginal. And uh, so, we, what you know, the question is how do we how to transition to a to a, a, a 
plant-based diet in a way that will that will f- focus uh, uh, that that will that will prioritize uh, ensuring that that everyone, not just the, the privileged, have have affordable and accessible access to, to plant-based foods. Those are really good. Uh, report produced by the World Wildlife Foundation in Canada. I, do you know that report or what it's called? And it, I can't remember what it's called, but you Google it, Google it, it'll come up, and it documents in very accessible language and with very powerful statistics the effects at a local level of industrial animal agriculture in, in Canada. They, look, they go right down to the municipal level, wage inequality, uh, ill health, Premature births, life expectancy, racial segregation—like all of those, those kinds of things. Uh, so I, I think that's a great uh, thing for if people are in, interested in learning more about. I, I feel like uh, the uh, industrial animal agriculture in Canada is invisible. Well, it's intentionally made invisible, <laughs> um, but that's it's a really good resource for um, for more accessible information about the impacts of that. Hi, I'm uh, Nama from LLCU as well. Thank you for the great talk. Um, I'd like to talk about more um, about wild animals and the impact that we have. I mean, you talk about um, the um, responsibility of humans um, to the immediate domestic animals and the um, health care that uh, we can provide them in the future. But I'll ask you um, that in a very uh, specific question. I mean, we all saw this um, horrific images of the emaciated polar bear. Um, and um, the people in the boat who were taking the picture were very heartbroken, and they couldn't feed it because there's a law not to feed it. And I wanted to ask you, had you been on this boat, what would you have done, both of you? So, um, yeah, so so our general story about uh, wilderness animals is that our fundamental obligation uh, is not directly to provide them with uh, food or shelter, but to, pro- but to protect the environment uh, uh, in which they live um, and, and for which uh, they are adapted and for which they have the skills to survive, generally speaking. So, um, and one way to do that, that we suggest, is to think of them as actually having territorial rights vis-a-vis their, their habitat. Um, and so we, we should we should think about um, that that when we you know build roads or uh, whatever we are we are in fact invading and colonizing uh, territory that belongs that belongs to it. we shouldn't think that all the territory of Canada belongs just to the humans we should think that uh, animals have territorial rights uh, that set limits on how we how we uh, invade and colonize their their land. And it should be seen as their land rather than ours in the first instance. Um, but on the more, but but we're going to even if we uh, agree with that, um, we're going to be confronted with questions of what in the in the political philosophy literature we call humanitarian intervention. So there's there's some example of, of suffering in the wild, and it's within our power maybe to uh, reduce suffering. Uh, so there may be. Uh, the, you know, even even setting aside climate change, there were there were always food cycles in in the wild. So there would always be periods in which some animals would be have inadequate food. Um, so uh, should we are we under an obligation to intervene to reduce suffering in the wild? 
And I mean, our story is that um, we're, we don't we don't think that nature is sacred, such that it's that that we're that it's always uh, always wrong or impermissible to intervene to to reduce suffering, um, and that there may be these kind of localized circumstances where we can indeed intervene in a benign way um, to to deal with a specific example of of uh, suffering. Um, but that the only under this condition that we are not creating ongoing relations of dependency um, such that we are essentially then turning the wilderness into a zoo in which we take over the management of uh, wild animals um, and and because so we don't take on the responsibility of leading their, of, of governing them and, and leading their lives such that that they will because um, as, as soon as you start down that road, it's no longer a matter of just if you're in the boat, do you have some food to give to the polar bear? But if they, if the polar bear then becomes dependent on you, then um, or, uh, and and if you think about this with respect to other animals, then you start thinking about their 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 offspring. Are their offspring going to be dependent on you? And then that's going to become unfeasible. So then you're going to have to regulate their reproduction so there aren't too many animals who are dependent on you. And that means you're going to have to confine them in order to regulate the reproduction. And you can you can imagine this. And this, I mean, we actually we can see some examples of this in some in some examples of wildlife conservation that we've essentially in the name of conserving a, a, a wild animal population, we've essentially created a zoo. And I think that is actually um, uh, a mistake. So we distinguish episodic one-off interventions. And I think we can have legitimate, humane d- d- uh, motivations. To, to re- If you see a deer trapped in a fence, I think it's OK to release the deer from the fence. And um, but, but that our goal should be to acknowledge that wilderness animals form their own societies, living on their own habitat, and that they have a right, generally speaking, to live autonomously on their, on their habitat, um, and that we shouldn't en- engage in forms of intervention that would uh, essentially involve us yeah, taking over the, the leading of the governing of their lives. We're going to wrap up the formal part. But I will say that we have the room, I think, for another 20, 25 minutes, if not a little bit longer, on this perhaps quiet Friday. So I'd like to invite all of you to enjoy tea and to stick around for more informal conversation. But before you do, I just want to offer my thanks to our speakers for today. I have small gifts from the Faculty of Arts and Science, which I will bring to you in a moment. But um, thank you so much, and thank you to all of you for coming. You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science. Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's University composer Marianne Mozedich. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 